Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, pastor of mission and worship here at LMPC, and this is a Pillar and Ground confession episode. In our confession episodes, we seek to understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. This week, we are beginning our study of chapter seven of the confession, which is titled, Of God's Covenant with Man. Now, if you've been paying attention to our study so far, or if you just know the, uh, the outline of the confession, the ordering here may strike you as odd. Chapter 6, that we looked at the last few weeks, was on sin. And chapter 8, the next chapter, is on Christ the Mediator. Uh, you might expect that after addressing sin, the confession would move straight to talking about the answer to our sin, Jesus. So it's interesting that the confession instead turns toward the topic of covenants. Why this detour? into this topic. Well, in the minds of the Westminster divines, this is actually not a detour at all. In order to understand Jesus and his redeeming work, we must understand the covenantal structure in which God provided a savior for us. If you've read the Bible, you know after Adam and Eve fall into sin in Genesis 3, God makes a promise in Genesis 3:15 that one of their offspring is going to come and crush the serpent's head. And theologians call this the Proto-Evangelium, which just means the first promise of the gospel or just first gospel. It's the first time in the scriptures that God is going to promise to send someone to deal with evil. And now we as Christians believe that that promised snake crusher, the seed of the woman, was Jesus. But if you've read the Bible, you know there's actually quite a bit of space between Genesis 3.15 and the arrival of Jesus. What is going on in that section of the Bible that we call the Old Testament? And how does what is happening there relate to what happened in Genesis 3, and then ultimately, what Jesus comes to do? We often think of the Old Testament and its stories about God and Israel as uh, mostly disconnected from Jesus, related in some ways, but Jesus is really doing a very new thing. I think that intuition is actually a mistake. In fact, the confession is going to argue that we cannot understand Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross without understanding how he fits with everything that has come before in the story of the Bible. If we can say that the Bible, broadly speaking, tells a story about God and humanity, how our relationship has gone wrong, and how God goes about fixing it, one of the questions at the heart of the story is, how is the relationship going to work? I mean, at the beginning of the story, we're talking about a transcendent deity and a finite people. How can a deity like that relate to a finite creature? And of course, the question gets even more complicated once sin enters the picture. How can a perfectly holy God relate to sinful creatures? And the way the Bible answers that question and describes the relationship between God and humanity is through the concept of covenant. In fact, we see covenants become the organizing structure of the entire Bible. Jesus, at the Last Supper, the the night he's betrayed before he goes to the cross, as he's trying to explain to his disciples what's about to happen, he tells them as he raises a cup of wine at dinner, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now, as Christians, obviously, we believe that the death of Jesus is at the heart of the good news, the Christian gospel. And Jesus himself thought the best way to explain the meaning of his death and what it was doing to his disciples was in terms of the language of covenant. But it's not just that Jesus uses this language. We we can't read the story of any major character in the Bible without stumbling across a covenant. Noah and the ark, Father Abraham and his many sons, Moses and the Ten Commandments, David, great giant killer of of Goliath, all their stories involve in some way or another the unfolding story of covenant. 
And as we're going to see today, even Adam's relationship with God has all of the key indicators of a covenant relationship. So all that preamble, just to say, it's a really important concept to understand if we want to understand the Bible, if we want to understand the story of redemption, if we want to be assured of our own salvation, if we want to understand how all of this fits together, we need to understand covenants. So let me read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 1, and then we will attempt to understand this concept of covenant a little bit further. The distance between God and the creature is so great that even though rational creatures are responsible to obey Him as their Creator, yet they could never experience any enjoyment of Him as their blessing and reward, except by way of some voluntary condescension on His part, which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if we, if we think of the Bible as a story about God and His desire to have a relationship with humanity, the unavoidable question is, okay, well, how is that going to work? He is God, and we are not. He is the Creator. We are creatures. The prophet Isaiah writes that in comparison to God, all the nations are like a drop from a bucket or dust on the scales. Now, to be sure, that's not to denigrate humanity. In our discussions of chapter 4 on creation, we establish that as human beings, we alone are created in God's image. It's interesting, in Genesis 1, over and over again, we see that God creates each animal according to its kind. But when we get to verse 26, in the creation of human beings, we find God saying, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So all the rest of creation is made according to its kind, but we are made according to God's kind. So we're made in God's image, and that's a status that no other created thing is given. But it's important to say we're still not God. And that's not even to comment on our our sinfulness and God's holiness, because it's true even before the fall, there is a huge gap between God's greatness and our smallness. He is the creator, and we are creatures. And as his creatures, we owe him our obedience. And interestingly, of course, he does not owe us anything for that obedience. I could illustrate the nature of the relationship this way. I often hear those of you with older children describe the dynamic where a child does uh, some chore around the house and then comes to you and wants to be paid for that chore. And I've often laughed as you describe your response to, sorry, that's just being part of the family. You don't get paid for that. And in some sense, I think that captures this dynamic well. We simply owe God obedience and he doesn't owe us anything in return. We're the creatures. He's the creator. Job 35, 7 reads, If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Jesus in Luke 17 tells his disciples to be like servants who, having done everything they were commanded to do, then say, We are but unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So by nature of the distance between creator and creature, the only way that we could ever have a more intimate relationship with God is if he decided to move towards us and to establish some terms by which that kind of relationship could even be possible. And the good news of the Bible is that God does that. God moves towards his creatures. And the way he does that is by making covenants with them. Now, that may raise a natural question for you. We've been uh, already throwing this word around this episode, covenant. You may be sitting there thinking, okay, I know I've heard that word. What does that mean? It's one of those words like gospel or grace that we say a lot in Christian circles, but perhaps do not define as often as we should. So let's do that. What is a covenant? 
Um, it's interesting. Theologians have actually struggled to come up with a really concise, accessible definition of covenant. So I'll just give you a few of the ones that you might uh, run across if you were to study this. Dr. O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, calls a covenant a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That's a little bit uh, hard to understand if you don't have all the context. So actually like this one, our good friend, John T. Rhodes, he's been on Pillar and Ground before. He wrote a great book that you might uh, look up if you want to study this more called Covenants Made Simple. And John T. calls a covenant a conditional promise. And then he unpacks that by saying it's an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Francis Turretin, the Reformed scholastic theologian, argued that a covenant is, quote, a pact and an agreement entered into, consisting partly in a stipulation of duty and partly in the promise of a reward. Now, I will say the simplest definition I've come across, and therefore my favorite, is from a professor named Stephen Myers. He uh, serves at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and he says in his book, God to Us, simply, a covenant is a relationship with parameters, I think that's really helpful. A covenant is a relationship with parameters. A covenant involves a relationship that has certain expectations and certain rules attached. There are duties involved, and there are rewards promised for fulfillment of those duties, and there are consequences laid out for failure to fulfill those duties. The most common version of this, I think, that we have and that we're familiar with is obviously the marriage covenant. A husband and a wife enter into a relationship. There's a formal agreement involving promises and stipulations, witnesses, vows, oaths. It is both a relationship uh, and a contract. And it's both of those things without either aspect negating the importance of the other. We all would would affirm the, the fact that marriage is an intimate, beautiful relationship. And yet at the same time, we all want our spouses to sign on the dotted line. We want the vow. We want the piece of paper uh, that says we have made uh, commitments to one another. We want there to be consequences if the vows are broken. And of course, we want the blessings that come with keeping the vows. And so we see the same pattern throughout the scriptures. God graciously enters into a formal relationship with his people, and then he defines the terms of the relationship. And I think we see this even in the first relationship between God and humanity in Genesis 1 through 3, between God and Adam and Eve. And that's exactly what the confession talks about in paragraph 2 of chapter 7. So let me read that and then we'll talk about it a little bit. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works in which life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So the confession argues that God makes a covenant with Adam in which he and his offspring are promised life for his obedience and death for his disobedience. Now, you will, I, I would invite you to go back to the last couple of episodes and when we were talking about chapter 6 and Adam as our representative. If that part about his, the promise being made to him and to his offspring is confusing to you, uh, go back and brush up there. But that is part of the arrangement here. A promise is made to Adam uh, as our representative and covenant head. Now, if you've read the first few chapters of Genesis, you may be confused thinking, I don't remember seeing the word covenant used there. I mean, I know I remember there being the covenant with Noah and the rainbow and obviously with Abraham and Moses and and even David, but I don't remember the word covenant being used with Adam. And you're actually right. The word covenant does not appear in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, this has led some Reformed theologians to disagree with the Westminster Confession on this point. 
Since the word covenant isn't used, they argue, we shouldn't say there is one here. What's interesting to note is that the word sin does not appear in Genesis 2 or through in 3 either, nor do any of the other Bible words for disobedience like transgression or iniquity. But of course, no one would argue that sin is missing from those chapters. The word may not be there. The reality certainly is. We might call this the if it looks like a duck principle. You've heard the adage, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. In the same way, anytime we are in the Bible and we see two parties enter a relationship with certain conditions and blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, among other things, we have a covenant. And we certainly have all of those things here in Genesis 1 and 2 between God and Adam. Certainly we see a relationship. As we've already said, Adam is created in God's image. Everything else God created simply by speaking. He said, let there be light. And there just was. But with humanity, he crouched down, formed him from the dust, and put his own breath in him. Which, as we've already said, is unique among all creation. As Stephen Myers notes in in that same book I referenced earlier, God to us, fish are like fish, birds are like birds, animals are like animals, but human beings are like God. They have breathed the breath of their creator. We also see the terms appearing for the relationship in Genesis 1 and 2. God gives Adam a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he tells him the consequences if he does, that he will die. And I think we can infer from the fact that there was a tree of life, which God ultimately banished Adam from after he sinned, that if Adam had obeyed, he would have gained life. He would have gained access to that tree. But Adam had more to do than just avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had commanded him to fill the earth and subdue it. He and Eve were to enjoy their marriage. They were to have children. They were to work the garden and extend its blessing throughout the whole earth. They were to enjoy the Sabbath just as God rested on the seventh day from his creative work. All this they were to do they were to do to enjoy the blessings of relationship with God. These were the terms of the covenant. Uh, many theologians have pointed out that Adam and Eve in, in all those creation ordinances that they're given get a seed form of what later becomes the Ten Commandments and the law. It's certainly stated differently for them, but we see little elements of each of it, including that uh, Sabbath invitation, the invitation to enjoy uh, marriage, uh, the invitation to work. All of those things are pieces that we see later in the law as well. So these are the terms of the covenant. And this is why the covenant is often called, as it is in this section of chapter 7 of the Confession, the covenant of works. Now, it's often called that by some people because they are contrasting it with what is called the covenant of grace, which is what we're going to talk about next time. It's important to note that God's grace appears even in this covenant of so-called works. Now, it's not redemptive grace, uh, that grace that we would call unmerited favor, But certainly, we might call it something like a condescending grace, because God does not owe Adam any of this arrangement. He doesn't owe him blessing for his obedience. We've already established that. Adam owes his obedience, and God owes him nothing for it. But God still graciously chooses to give it to him. We might think of it like this. Myers uses this illustration in his book, and I found this helpful as I was studying up on this. He invites us to imagine you have two kids, and one of them steals $10 from you, and you know that they've stolen it. Uh, and they ultimately confess to you, return it to you. And then a week later, they ask for $10 more. And you decide to give it to that child. Then your second child does not steal $10. And he also comes and asks a week later for $10. And you give it to him. 
Now, in the first instance, we might call that redemptive grace. Your first child has stolen from you. There is demerit there. And so you showing him favor would be a redemptive grace. The second child uh, is still receiving grace because he hasn't done anything to earn the $10 either. He's still just asking for it. Uh, He just hasn't done anything that might disqualify him uh, from getting it. But he hasn't earned it either. And so it is, in that sense, gracious as well. So too, the covenant of works can be called gracious in that sense, that God did not owe Adam the terms of this relationship. He did not owe him this intimacy. He did not owe him blessing and reward. And yet, we serve a God who delights to bless his people, who delights to draw near to them in relationship. So the name, the covenant of works, really focuses on the works principle in the arrangement. If Adam and Eve kept the commandments, they would live. Paul writes in Romans 10.5, citing Leviticus 18, he says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You may remember, too, a conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler, and, and he's asking Jesus, how, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And they get into this conversation about the law, and how he reads it, and uh, he summarizes it well, and Jesus says, yep, that's it. Do that, and you will live. There is a connection. If you could obey the commandments, if you could keep them perfectly and perpetually, then you would live. You would have everlasting life. The problem for the rich young ruler and everyone else after Adam is that as we looked at in our discussion of chapter 6 of the confession, none of us after the fall into the sin can do that. None of us are able to perfectly keep the law. Because as we know, God, as he initiated this relationship with Adam and Eve in the covenant of works and promised them blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience, broke the law. He took the forbidden fruit violated the terms of the covenant, and death and sin entered in. And so God would have to make a new covenant arrangement to keep the relationship with his people. And of course, we find that's exactly what he does, and that will be the subject of next week's episodes as we turn our attention to the covenant of grace. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us again for future episodes.